All right, so looking back here, obviously I told you we're going to be looking at this act and process of salvation. And chapter 1 obviously dealt with a lot of these issues as well, right? We talked about adoption as sons. We talked about redemption and forgiveness. We talked about our internal inheritance. And last week we talked about the greatness of his power. And now we're going to speak on the riches of his grace. But what's interesting is Paul basically gave us all of these elements of what we have as believers and as children of God. And now he circles back around and he starts from the top and gives us this process of salvation and how it takes place. And now through the miracle of salvation, obviously we have the riches of his grace. Going back to Ephesians 1.19, and it says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the works of his great might? So that immeasurable, that amount that is not able to be measured, the greatness of his power is what moves on us in salvation. Paul's not praying that the power we w- would be given to believers, but that they would recognize the power that exists in them. And this is what Ben spoke about at the end of last week. That, guys, the resurrection power, that salvation that takes place in our life is not something that just we experience. It is what lives and it's what is inside of us as believers, Right? But so many times do I feel we fail to realize the power that is in us because of Christ and what he's done. So let's look at grace. Just a couple of basic things about it. It can be a name, right? How many people know somebody named Grace, right? They're out there. It can be something we say before we eat. We say grace, right? I was thinking about that, about saying grace. And I'm a, uh, a quick grace prayer, um, obviously, to get to the food, um, but I think about sometimes, I've, as I've heard people over the years, and some of them say, they say, let us thank him for our food. When do they thank him? When do we thank him? They say, we're going to thank him, but then it never happens. So if you were that person, just remember to circle back and thank him for the food. After you've warned everybody that you're thinking about thanking him. It can be a time of temporary exemption, right? A grace period. Don't we, don't we all like those at certain times, you know, when you got... You know, that test that you thought was on a certain day and the professor says actually it's going to be the next day. You kind of get that grace period to, because you probably, if you're like me, you probably didn't study much. And you probably still won't study much until you get to the next deadline. But we have grace periods. And there's times that we extend grace, right, in our own life. I think about it as a, as a parent and the idea of extending grace. For me, it's a very easy thing to extend um, discipline and to draw hard lines but as, but as I've matured in uh, parenting, um, God's shown me in so many ways there's an element that I've got to understand with grace, right? To be able to understand that, my, that obviously there's still discipline that takes place, but we sit down and we discuss and we talk, and, and sometimes we lessen the sentence if the response is correct, right? But the truth is, is in those moments why that grace is so important is because as parents it gives us an opportunity to teach, and it gives us an opportunity for our kids to see that they can respond to the Holy Spirit in their life. It's not just that they're responding to you as a parent, but if they're a believer in Christ, they too can respond. So grace affords us these opportunities. And grace in the context of Scripture is what? The unmerited favor of God in our lives as believers, which means we did not deserve it. It's unmerited. It's nothing that we could earn. It's nothing that we can do. It is unmerited, that grace that flows into our life. Salvation is a blessing to the believer, but it is most important as it brings glory to God. And salvation 
His endless and limitless grace and kindness is bestowed on us as believers. So there's an amazing thing that happens in our life, but even more important than that is that God has given the glory of what he's done with something that is dead, and he's brought it unto life. That only he is able to do so. Before we go any further, though, as we're going to get into this first point here, what I want us to see is that apart from Christ, we were dead. Apart from Christ, we were dead. And I'm going to read this first part of Ephesians 2. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what's the first part of that scripture? It says right there, it says, we were dead. Now look, that's past tense. So he's speaking to the believers that you were dead, but you are no longer, but it's important and we have to go back and realize that we were dead Before that, we were spiritually dead. We were like zombies walking around. Now, nobody would have thought you were. You looked normal on the outside. Our our earthly body looked like it should, but the inside was dead, and it was unable to respond to anything. We just moved about. We didn't have anything to do with the spiritual realm. And today, if you're here and, and you've not named the name of Christ, that's the reality of who you are. And you say, well, that's bad news. Man, that's, that's offensive. Why would you say that to me? And why would you call me that? And it has nothing to do with that other than that in order for us to understand who we are in Christ, we have to first understand who we were as a sinful man, as a sinful woman. It's nothing more that it shows that brings glory to God that was, takes place. It's the reality of who we are. We think about physical death, right? How many times have you been at a funeral um, and you were able to speak to the person in the casket, and they would respond to you. Or the urn, you know, like a genie in a bottle kind of thing. You know, they, they're dead, right? They don't respond. You know, I've always, as a kid, I can remember going to funerals, and I was like, I think they moved. <laughs> I think they moved. You know, obviously they didn't, you know. As a kid, it's just a very unique situation. Um, but the reality is when there is physical death... They're dead. They have no ability to respond. Think about the story of Lazarus in John eleven thirty nine, And this is the scripture that says, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Four days. So he is good and dead. There's no questions about it, right? There is an odor. Thank God for modern medicine, and we don't deal with that anymore. But there was an odor. You know, I think about... Think about death, you know, whether somebody's been dead for one minute or been dead for one year or been however long, it doesn't change the level of dead, right? Dead is dead, and that's just a fact, and that's just a way it's cut. But in Matthew chapter 8, he's talking to his disciples. Remember, he's calling them to follow him, and he says, let the dead bury their dead, right? Now, Now, we know that he's speaking about to the fact of the guys wanting to hang back and get his inheritance whenever his father's passed, but he's saying, he's saying, the physical dead and the spiritual dead. He's making a comparison there that the dead bury their dead and take care of that. So there, there's, a, there's a constant back and forth we see in Scripture of the earthly, our earthly body and our spiritual life that takes place. Revelation 3.17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, 
blind and naked. Isn't that where we are? He's speaking to the church at Laodicea. In the first part, they say, they say I'm rich and uh, I've prospered and I need nothing. In of ourselves, that's what we think. But then what does God tell us about us until we know him? That you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But look at the next thing. He says, what are, and so I ask you the question, what are we dead in? And it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's what we were dead in. We lived and we operated in this realm of sin and trespass. Look what Jeremiah said about us. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what he said about our heart. That's what he said we were before Christ. And look at it. It's also, it's plural. It doesn't say trespass and sin. It says trespasses and sins. It's plural. It's something that's happened over and over again that we're looking at. And break, let's look at those two words, trespasses, and that by definition is a side slip, a lapse or deviation, an unintentional error or willful transgression. How many of you have seen no trespassing signs? You know, for those of you that are out there, you know, poaching maybe, you know. Um, you know, you say, well, I, ha- I don't see a sign, you know. But there's about 50 yards that way. There is one if you happen to pass by it, right? Trespassing, you know, we, we, we go into areas and we do things that we shouldn't do. And then the word sin, sin is missing the mark. It's actually a hunting term for, for shooting a bow. So I was thinking about this for all you hunters out there. I'm just going with what it says here, but if you miss, it's a sin. Right? Right, Pastor Nay? It's a, it's a sin. Now, there's forgiveness. There is forgiveness. But for all you hunters out there, next time before you pull that trigger or let that arrow go, it's here. But what are we missing the mark on? If sin is missing the mark on something, what are we missing? Is it just the fact that we have broke some law, we've broke some particular, something someone's asked of us in our life? That's an element of it, obviously. But more importantly, what it is, is we, it's more of what we have failed to do, and we have failed to bring glory to God. That's, that's, the, that's the more, that's the side that's much deeper for us, right? Because we all understand following rules. But what we failed to do, the mark that we have missed is the righteousness of God. And that's who we are. That's the reality of who we are. Paul is not using two terms here to point out that there's different types of wrongdoings, but rather to show us the breadth of sinfulness that results from our spiritual deadness. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law no human being shall be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law exists there, and it lets us know something, but it's the knowledge of sin because we realize it's a standard that God has said that we cannot obtain. It's something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. We do not have the ability to do so. Despite our best efforts, it cannot happen. But let's look at God's standard. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? And then you look at us in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. So there's the reality of the two places. God is holy, and we are not. That's the, that is where we are. We are unable to save ourselves and reach that lesson. Actually, I want to do a quick little object lesson for you. I've got a pretty cool little slide here. So obviously this is, we've got a man and a woman, and we've got what we believe to be some sort of athlete, right? And there's this, we, and we actually sung about it this morning, there's this chasm that we constantly try to, we constantly try to span in our good works, Right? But no matter how much we do, no matter how far we run and jump, we come up short no matter what. Actually, the first screens showed the uh, woman getting a little bit further 
than the man. I'm not sure if that was doctrinal or not, but it looks like, but she, she, but, but they ultimately all plummet to their death. (coughs) Sorry. But here's the reality. We cannot, no matter how hard we try, make it that distance. And we will all, and we do fall to our death. I mean, it's like if I took a run run from the back of the stage and tried to jump, I could probably make it to Ben. But I probably could not make it to Mr. Vera right behind him. So the reality is I can't, I will not be able to do that no matter how hard I try. And it's the same thing for us. We try to do good things. We try to be good people, right? How many people are good people, right? Well, the sad thing is, and I don't say this lightly, there's going to be a lot of good people that are separated from God because of the reality of their sin in their life. Salvation is what saves us from our sin. John 16, 8 says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's no in-between. You've got a quote there in your notes. It says, It is dangerous for us to think that moral goodness is ever a comparison to the reality of our sin. Moral goodness gets us nowhere. It does nothing for us eternally. We must see our sin in the correct light. It is what separates us from a holy God. We are the criminal who is unrighteous and deserving of judgment. And unfortunately, in our culture today, we see ourselves as victims. And when you see yourself as a victim, you are looking elsewhere for the perpetrator, when in fact, the perpetrator is you. We are the ones that put Christ on the cross. It's what we did. It's our sin. But isn't it so true in our culture today that everybody lacks the idea of having personal responsibility? You know, I spend, you know, even in the workplace, I probably spend, not probably, every problem that we have, every problem you have in your life is based on people not taking personal responsibility for what, for what they're supposed to. Why? Because with that becomes an excuse. And then we can able to begin to shed off responsibility. But guys, the truth is, is, It's us. We've got to deal with it directly. We've got to take the responsibility in our lives and realize that it's God who does that work in us. There's nothing that we can do. There's two words that we're about to get to that may be the most hope-filled in all of this text. And it's the answer for us from the sin and the separation that we have from God. And I'm going to read this for you here. And this is just, I just get excited even thinking about it. But Ephesians 2, 4, 9 says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Is that not good news? But God, but God, that three-letter word, that conjunction that carries us from who we were, the reality of our sin, it says but, and then it says God. That is, that is powerful, church. That is where we are. And look, if you look in verse 1, where we go back, it says, it starts off, and you. And then we fast forward, and then it says, but God. So that first part, it says you. It didn't say anything about your abilities. It spoke only of your inability. And then it goes to but God. And what does it do? It speaks to the power and the strength and the might that he exhibits in this here. And we're going to get into this, and we have only just begun at 11.17. I'm so excited. Our spiritually dead man is spoken to in that moment and can respond because of the call from the Holy Spirit. For the first time, we're able to respond out of our deadness. Why? Because we mustered up enough strength? No, because the Holy Spirit grips our heart, right? Let's look back at Lazarus. He's going to be our buddy here for the rest of the service. 1143, it says, when he said these things, this is just, remember, we've forgotten. We know that he's smelly and there's an odor. 
Jesus cried out. He said, Lazarus, come out. His physical dead body was spoken to in that moment by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And life comes into him, right? And he gets up. And there probably was still a smell. And he still was all in his situation he was in. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. But the power of God speaks into his life in that very moment. It's the same thing that happens to us as believers. Our spiritual dead man that's on the inside, all of a sudden the spirit of God speaks. And life comes in an instant. And this is the full power and might, the immeasurable riches of his power and might is bestowed on us in that one moment. Wham, it hits you. That's powerful. But let's look what it says here. It says, but God, and our first sub part of this is that he is rich in mercy because of what? The great love with which he loved us. Verse 4 says that he has great love. For his love is great and he displays it in the miracle of salvation. Because the reality is we've not only sinned against God's law, but we've also sinned against his love in that moment. And I want to break that down and kind of talk about that a little bit. Because we know that he set the law for us, right? And we, and we have obviously not held up to that standard. And we have, we have missed the mark there, right? And we have sinned. And we have the original sin that comes with us. But then when you look back for us and we look what Christ did and he sent his son to the cross for us, he, he let out all of the love on earth. Before we even did, before the sin that we would even do, and what happens? We still, we sinned against his very love because it says that is where his mercy comes from. You know, I think about a, um, you know, and this is a hypothetical situation, but let's say you're driving down the road and just strictly out of accident, um, someone runs out in front of you in the road and you, you hit them with your vehicle and unfortunately they pass away, right? You're going to be brought to obviously to jail, and you'll have the court proceedings, and more than likely you'll be charged with some sort of manslaughter, right? It would be an unintentional. You weren't trying to do it, but you did it nonetheless. You would serve whatever term and sentence, and you would get whatever conviction came with that, and you would process it all. And that would be the the very law that you broke would be essentially atoned for through that punishment of you. But guess what you still got to deal with? You still got to deal with the parents or the family of that person that lost their life, right? Because no amount of just doing the right thing and serving your time and serving your sinners and saying, I'm sorry, changes the fact that they, that was someone that they loved. That was someone that meant something to them that's no longer there. So what's the only way for us to get past that, right? What's the only way to get past that situation? Because there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say. Ultimately, that family member has to step into my life and say, I forgive you. I understand what happens. I have, to, I have to forgive you for what has just taken place in order for you to be released in that moment from what you've done. And is it not so much more powerful what God did when he sent his only son, the very love, the very thing that he, of who he is, crucified him on that cross for us? That's the love that we went against in our sin. That's who we were before Christ. And he extends it out of mercy. And actually, I wanted to, to kind of further illustrate mercy. I'm going to ask my um, assistant to come up, my son Logan. We got something we're going to show y'all. So this is Logan. Everybody tell Logan hi. Well, please. So how many of you heard of the game Mercy? You know, where you grab each other's hands and you try to twist each other's hands and make it hurt until somebody says Mercy, right? I also heard that it might be called Pinochle. I've never heard that. You know, maybe you have from other parts of the country. 
So I'm going to show you the game of mercy, right? Who's, who, would, who is going to win in this game of mercy? Logan? Well, I'll, look, I'll just, spoiler alert, he won't, okay? For the sake of, for the sake of obviously showing the mercy, it's, it would be counteractive for him to win. So, sorry. But we've already practiced, he knows. So it says that he extends out of the riches of his mercy, right? His great love. So in order to extend mercy, you have to be in a position, obviously, to do one of two things. To have the power to extend mercy, or the flip side of it, the power to inflict wrath, right? So we're going so to play this game here. We'll put our hands together. Now, Logan's considerably smaller than me, and we're going we're gonna to engage in the game of mercy. Now, don't be tough, okay? Remember what we practiced, all right? One, two, three. Our mercy. Okay. So, he's, he's much tougher. I told him to put on as much as he could. So, here's the thing. So, I exhibited mercy in his life, right? You know, because truthfully, had I wanted to, I could have broken his arms in half, his wrist. You know, it really would have not taken much more, and it would have been over with for him, right? Then there's a whole other list of issues that could come up there. Where's the police officer? <laughs> but the reality is, is, the, is mercy, has to, you have to be in a position to need it. He needed my mercy, right? Because if not, it gets bad for him. You can go back and sit down. So the same thing happens here for Christ. That's right, give him a hand. So it says, it says he extends mercy out of his riches. That's what God did for us. So what did we actually, what did we deserve or what do we deserve as sinners? Right, the very wrath of God, right? Complete and total separation from God. That's what we deserve, and that's what he could have given. But what does it do? It says, out of the riches of his mercy, out of his love. And as we move on here, he talks about his grace and his kindness. Because what does it say? We were, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And that grace, a little bit further on, it comes out, it says his grace in kindness. So out of his mercy, out of his love, he then extends to us grace. Grace is the very blessing that we receive. It is the, it is the changing power in our life. It's what God puts in place for us and we no longer have separation from him. That's extended out of his great mercy. Verse 5, it says, even when we were dead. Once again, past tense, we were dead. He made us alive together. And look at those words there, with Christ. And we're going to see that repeat itself here. But it says, with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Because why? Dead people don't respond all on their own. That grace has to be extended to them. We are brought to life. The old has passed away. What does it say in Corinthians? That we are a new creation, right? We are a new creation. And I think it's just hard for us sometimes to wrap our mind around that because we feel and look the same in most situations. You know, in some cases, probably may not even be happy with what we see. But what's taking place on the inside of us is a whole new creation. It's a whole new creation. And this one will be glorified in the day that we meet Christ. But for now, it's something that's happening on the inside of us. Verse 6, and he raises us up with him and seated him with us in the heavenly places. Once again, what? In Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus. It's also, it's, it's past tense. It says raised. It's something that's taken place in our life as believers. But it's in that moment of salvation we receive the full dose of who Jesus Christ is. It says, he says he lifts us up and he seats us up within the heavenly places. Guys, how powerful is that? How powerful is that? That in that moment you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Like this. Like this. It happens that quick. And all of a sudden, what should happen is our perspective changes. Philippians 2.19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Our focus change. We begin to see people differently than we saw them before. We begin to see situations differently than the way we've seen them before. Does it happen in an instant? I don't think we realize it in an instant in so many situations, but that process is playing out because now it says, Scripture says, we are no longer strangers and aliens. What were we strangers and aliens of before? Of God, of heaven, of what is all is good. Now we are no longer that, that we move forward. And look here in verse 7, it says, So that in the coming ages he might show, and we see this again, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. We see all three elements here that he keeps circling back. It says, with Christ. In Christ Jesus. That process of sanctification begins in our life unto that point that what? We are fully glorified. We reference back to verse 19 again, the immeasurable riches of his power and his might. And now we see it again, his immeasurable riches of his grace. And it brings us to this last part here, with faith. The last part of the text, reason by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is what? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. So we see two things, and Ben talked about this in one of the early weeks, that there's this, there's this grace that is bestowed to us from God alone, and it is, it is what saves us. And then the other side of it is that we express belief and we expect faith in Christ. Those, things, those two things run side by side, and for us it's a hard thing to grasp, but the reality is, is that's the process of salvation that takes place, that we are given the opportunity to express belief in the God and Savior, the Creator of this world. Circling back on verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do we boast in? What does Scripture tell us? We boast in the Lord our God, right? We sing that song regularly. That is what we boast in. We don't boast in our ability, because really what you would be boasting in is your actual inability. Because you did not have the ability to respond to that until God gripped your heart and drew you into that place. Look at, it, look at the security that God gives us. In Philippians 1.16, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's powerful words, church. Because so many times we come to this place of knowing Christ, and, but we, once again, we see all this stuff that's going on around us. We see all the things that we're a part of and the things that we don't like. And we begin to question, did God do a work in us or what's going on and so forth and so on. But the truth is, if God did grip your heart and did draw you into salvation, what does Scripture tell us? That he is going to complete the good work that he started. Guys, that's powerful. You know, that's where we need to hang on to. That's where we need to anchor on in those moments when things are just tough. That what God did in your life is way bigger than your feelings and your emotions. And he's able to get you past and through those things there. Looking at faith, and I just kind of was thinking about faith in general, right? You know, we have faith in all kinds of things. 
You know, we're speaking, obviously, at a high level here with salvation. But think about what you do on a daily basis. When you leave here, you're going to either make a left or right, preferably, on 311. And you're going to travel in those directions. And you're going to allow a painted line to separate you from a major collision. Right? That's faith. When you consider that's faith, you know. Now think about, you know, growing up, as, you, as I told you all last time, growing up down the Bayou in Chauvin. We drank out the water hose a lot. Actually, we drank out the hose pipe, right? That's two of them side by side, a hose and a pipe. You know, you think about when you first turn on that hose, and especially if you was like us, we had those big, long, black, you know, rubber hoses that got, like, scorching hot in the summertime. And the first time you learned your lesson when you got burned in the mouth. But once you got past that, the taste that comes out of an old rubber hose, it's just one you never forget, Right? So as I've gotten older, I've learned to let the water run a little while. <laughs> but isn't it faith that you would drink water out of that hose? Well, we're assuming that that little pamphlet that they send you once a year, telling them how good their water is, you believe them. You believe them. I believe them. You know, my kids regularly go to the sink, and that's what they do. They pull a faucet down, and they drink out. And I'd say, to God be the glory, it's much cheaper, right, than purified water. But that's faith that takes place there. You know, she was always afraid to eat any game that we would bring home because it rains. You know, rule in my house was if you shoot it, you eat it. Uh, that was my dad's rule. I, I think really what he was trying to teach me is not to have a taste for multiple types of animals, but mostly to be mindful of what I would shoot. And um, so she never knew what we were coming home with. And you know, I was thinking later in life when I got married and we were preparing meals and, I, you know, we, we, we laugh about it now. But there was a time I think she was very reluctant you know, to, to eat anything that we cooked. You know, if it was something Rachel prepared, and I think we pretty much had her. But she had no faith in me. She had no faith that I was providing beef, you know. She had no faith that it was chicken, you know. And now, later in life, I believe I've, I've earned that back. But we put faith in so many things that we have no idea. You know, we go to restaurants. You ever been in the kitchen of a restaurant? Right? You know, all of y'all are probably going there when you leave service today. But the truth is, is we put our faith in so many things. And when we do it, we, we're just believing that what's going to come out is what we believe is going to come out. But we have no idea. But how much more powerful in our lives as, as a believer, when we see this act of faith, when we express belief, that you don't have to be worried about whether or not it's real or not. You don't have to be worried about it's, if it's the real deal. You don't have to be worried if it's going to come with any side effects the side effects that it does come with will be of power and might and change in your life that you've never experienced before. Galatians 3.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also who believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And it brings us to the last part of the text here. It says, in Christ, we are his workmanship. 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that word right there, workmanship, speaks to masterpiece. When you look at it in the Greek, it speaks to a masterpiece that God created. That he took something dead and he turned it into life. There's a masterpiece that is created. And did he create this masterpiece so that you would boast? No, he created this masterpiece so that he could say, 
Look what I've done. To the glory be to the God that has done something so exceedingly and abundantly with this dead thing and created life out of it. He has created us for good work, and it's what he gets the glory. I'd like to believe it's the, it's the right prosperity message, right, that we should look at. We should look at the immeasurable grace that God bestowed upon us. That's the prosperity that we live in, church. Not what we gather and not what we collect, but what God has done with something that was unable to do anything on its own. He speaks into that life and brings it in and makes it a new creation. Look at it right here in Ephesians 3.10. It says, so that through the church, and the church is who? That's the ones that are called out by Christ, the ecclesia. It says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in all the heavenly places. And that's what God does. He says, look what I have done. Look what I have created. Look what I have done. And look, Revelation 7.10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And to all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And Crystal Lewis had a popular song years back, right? Was it? Salvation belongs to our God. Actually, when I was listening to it, I thought about you, Brother Renee. I said, he would have liked to sing this one for us this morning. Salvation belongs to our God. And that's what he puts on display for us. And then it says here that he did it beforehand. We learned about this in the beginning, that he adopted us as sons. He did this all before. When? When we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And we go a little bit further in the verse, and it says that so that we should walk in them. Church, that's what this all culminates to that the opportunity for us to get out and to advance the gospel, to show what the work that has happened in our life. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, and you bear much fruit, and so prove it to be my disciples. That's what we do, church. That's our call. Getting back to Lazarus here, let's look here in verse eleven forty four. It says, And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. And is that not what Christ has done in us in that act, in the process of salvation? You know, we come out of that grave with a smell that's been on us for years, right? We still have got the grave clothes draped about us. And we still got the things of life that just drag us down and tear us down. But what did Christ say? He said, unbind him and let him go. Why? Because, what does it say there at the end of that scripture? It says, so that we should walk in them. That's all I'm asking, so that we should walk in them. You're not dead anymore. You're not dead anymore. That stuff that's on you is on its process of falling off. The process of sanctification is happening in your life, and one by one, those nasty strips of linen begin to fall, and that rotten and dead flesh begins to be replaced with new flesh, and you are a new creation. The indwelling power of the Spirit is at work. We got to do something we got to do something. We don't sit there anymore. We go out and we advance the gospel. What does it tell us in Matthew 28, 19? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Guys, it's the power that exists in that moment of salvation stays with you. It's not over. 
It's not just that one feel-good moment when you give your life to Christ. It continues on and on as you are out there busy discipling in your workplace, in church, in your families, in your marriages, in your relationships. That power goes with you and is extended out ahead of you. The reality of who we were, that apart from Christ, we were dead. With Christ, we were made alive. And then in Christ, we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. He has done something great, and he gets the glory and the honor in that situation. Now, if you're here today, you, you, you line up on one side or the other. You line up in a place where you are spiritually dead. And you may be beginning to realize it, and the reason why is because God is gripping your heart. I don't think it's by chance that you're here. He's working in your heart. And for those of you here that have expressed belief in Christ, past tense, you were. He's raised you up. All of this has already taken place. Now it says what? That you need to walk in them and move in those. As we close our service today, that's what I want us to think about. Those are the things that I want us to have on our mind. And if you're here today in either one of those camps and you want to speak to someone, as we conclude here, our pastors will be down here to speak with you. But remember, God God has called you to something more than just an exciting moment, more than just a moment where you have a tingly feeling. His power exists in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this morning. God, I thank you for this church. God, we thank you for your word, God, and its power in our lives. God, that it is what changes us. God, that we, Father, were dead in our trespasses and sin. And God, that you gripped our heart, God, and you pulled us out of that. And God, you've set us in place. Father, there's a great masterpiece. God, that brings glory to your name, Father. God, give us the strength, God, as we go from here. God, to bring glory to you in every situation. God, to be busy about the advancement of the gospel. God, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.